You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Jim Fox. Jim is the co-founder of Patine Cellars, where they're focused on producing single vineyard Pinot Noir from California. Enjoy my conversation with Jim. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Ryan, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great having you here. So we're going to get into Patine. We're going to uh, go through these wines and talk about the story of how you uh, co-founded the label with Dean and, and Mike Smith and everything else. But before we get into all that, Let's just go into a little bit about your background. Uh, a lot of people are going to know who you are. There's a lot of LA Kings fans. Um, a lot of listeners are here in SoCal, but there are people all over the place. So let's get into a little bit of your background, and then we can dive into how you got passionate and went down the road of uh, being in the wine business and getting into wine. Well, I grew up in Canada, a very small town, Coniston, Ontario. It's about 200 miles north of Toronto. Uh, grew up playing hockey like uh, there, like everyone, uh, every other kid did. Uh, basically, the year after you start walking is the year you start skating. So, uh, did that um, to speed up to how we got here. Um, was drafted by the LA Kings in 1980. So, I played 10 seasons with the Kings hockey here in, in Los Angeles. Um, after retiring, I went right into the front office in the community relations department. And then a year later, right into broadcasting, a role I'm still involved in as the TV analyst for the Kings. I think uh, 30 years, I just passed 30 years last year as a TV analyst, so 40 years with the LA Kings. And that's how I got to California. Really didn't know a lot about wine until I got to California. Really didn't start to get serious until I actually retired from my playing days, which was 1990 or so. Uh, But since then, really uh, started to get involved in just try to gain as much experience and education as possible. Yeah, that's great. And congratulations on the passing the 30-year milestone. That's that's amazing. Um, and obviously, you got to have uh, experience a couple Stanley Cups with the Kings as well. I remember when they first, uh, the first one when they beat the Devils, it was just like a, a like a relief and this wave came over me like we finally did it. <laughs> uh, I, what was your experience like when that happened? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's it's certainly a long time coming. Uh, I think that makes it sweeter when it happens because you have to go through a struggle. And, you, you know, Kings fans have done that for years and years and years, generations of Kings fans. And then when you finally get to the top of the mountain like that, uh, I don't think there's uh, just, you know, the feeling is it's a little bit relief because of all the pressure that was on. And that's why I always tell people that my most memorable moments of the Stanley Cups in 2012 and 2014 were actually the parades after because the pressure was off then and you just had a chance to celebrate. You didn't have to worry about winning the next game, but but you know you're already champions. And that made it so much more uh, enjoyable for me to, to just celebrate again. I remember the first parade in 2012 where you know, going down Figueroa in downtown Los Angeles and you know the street is just lined with fans and fans. And I could see in one group, I could see a little kid about five years old. I could see a teenager. I could see the mom and pop. I could see the grandparents all standing together 
you know, different colored jerseys on with, you know, Kings uh, jerseys they've worn throughout the years. And that really hit home for me where, you know, how long people have waited for it and how important it is to them and how to get it done. And uh, with Patinay, our first vintage was 2011, but it was not released until 2013. So I didn't get a chance to really drink Patinay out of the Stanley Cup in 2012. But in 2014, I did. And that made it real good. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah, it's a nice little antidote for, for hockey fans that that vintage was actually drunk out of Lord Stanley's Cup. So you mentioned uh, getting into wine when you finally arrived in California, kind of early 90s, I guess, or mid 90s. What was your experience like getting into wine? Were you traveling up to Napa and Sonoma or what kind of wines were you drinking? And what was your experience like kind of your first foray into things? Yeah, I mean, I would dabble into it here and there, but like most hockey players, I was a beer drinker. And I think that uh, is something that's kind of a staple for Canadians as they grow up. Um, I, when I, it actually started, you know, be honest, dabbled here and there, uh, Sutter home, White Zinfandel. How's that? Yeah. (laughs) That, that was just, you know, they were making just tons and tons and tons of it. So I had it there, but when it really hit home, it was again, early nineties, there's a restaurant here in the South Bay in Hermosa Beach. Uh, for those who don't know Los Angeles, it's just south of the airport, LAX. And it's called the Bottle Inn. It's still there today. Uh, the name might give away what they prioritized because they prioritized wine. It was an Italian restaurant. Uh, so I, I started drinking wine there mostly and mostly old world wines, mostly Italian and French. And that's when it really kind of got on to me. And, and and if I can be honest, in my experience way back then, uh, you know, they would keep bringing over these Chiantes. And I think back then, Italy wasn't exporting their 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 best Chiantes. And they were very harsh and acidic. And I really didn't like it. I, I just couldn't get into it. And But I kept going to this restaurant because I loved it. And the, and the wait staff there just kept bringing me wine after the taste, taste, taste. And finally, I remember Chateau La Neurthe. It's actually a... Rhone white wine. So, you know, a blend of Grenache and Roussan and probably a f- few others. And it just hit me. Wow. This is so good. It was crisp. It was clean. It was fruity. You know, not over-oaked. It was just so pleasant to drink and, and so vibrant. And it caught my attention. So when I, when I told the waitstaff I liked that wine, they kept, so now it moved to white burgundies. And just really started to appreciate the style they were made in. And then I was I was just, that was it. I, I was in. I was all in. Uh, started taking classes, mostly wine appreciation classes. UCLA, just, you know, Wine 101. Uh, Ian Blackburn is a gentleman here in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, learn about wine, which is now Wine LA. His courses, uh, you know, wine appreciation, but then also wine tasting. He offers a certificate. Did that. Then when I started to travel, I started, you know, Europe, Italy, France, Spain, started to just go to all the wine regions and take classes and seminars when we went there. And um, that's that's just basically how, how it happened. Um, then, you know, I was playing golf one day and route 19, oh, when was it? Maybe 2005, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there, playing golf with a friend. And he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to make my own wine. He said, well, why aren't you doing it? I said, well, I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take the risk financially. And uh, he was a very generous man. And he just said, well, I have the money for you. So that's how Patinay started. Um, and that, that's how my intrigue, I call it with wine started, uh, because it's something that you know, I just can't wait for the next day, the next time I have a glass of wine that I really appreciate. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a great story. I mean, everyone comes to wine differently. Sometimes there's that one bottle that does it for you. Um, you mentioned your restaurant experience of getting to try kind of more and more wines and building up to building your palate there and, and being able to kind of explore as you mentioned, some of the Chiantis and then moving on to that white wine that you liked. 
Um, and then, you know, taking that extra step, as you talked about, of going to uh, UCLA, some of the extension, they have some great extension courses there. Uh, UC Davis has some too. And you mentioned Wine LA. They've been around for a long time. Used to be Learn About Wine, as I think you mentioned. And um, they do such a great job of uh, tastings. And they, they, they were doing some great restaurant um, wine yes. pairings and things but before COVID broke out. So hopefully they'll get back to that as well. And uh, actually, if I can write with, with Wine LA and Ian Blackburn, I, I, he actually offered a course too. It was just called The Business of Wine. Mm-hmm. So that helped me. I actually was already involved in the formation of Pastinae at the time. But, you know, I, I took the course just to, you know, am I missing something? You know, again, it was kind of a how to get into the business 101. And that just really helped me more so uh, to learn how to, to ask the correct questions. And again, I, I did take some, I took a hands-on winemaking class, a four-day seminar at, at UC Davis. And I, that was well after Patnay was already born. But what that did was allow me to then, when I had the ability to gain the best experience, which is in the vineyard or in the winery with Mike Smith, our winemaker. But now I was able to start asking questions that I think, you know, hopefully challenged Mike. It wasn't just, the, you know, the, the grassroots, the standard questions. It was getting a little bit deeper. And I think those types of courses uh, you know, I think there's a, you talk to people in the wine business, the wine industry, there's always that, you know, do, do you need the books? Do you need the, you need, do you need that? Do you need the schools or do you just need, you know, the hands-on in the vineyard and in the winery? And, uh, I, I've been fortunate to do both. And, and I think it really helped me to, uh, again, just, just be able to form a question, uh, that I was able to get the answer because now I understood a little bit more. Yeah, and, and you're making uh, super premium, kind of really high-level, uh, single-vineyard designate Pinot Noir from California. I was going to uh, talk about Mike Smith as well or ask you about that and how you got together with him. But there's so many different avenues that you can go down when, when uh, deciding that you want to make a wine. You can do kind of a blend. You can do something with like a... I don't know, like a really catchy label or something with maybe the the quality of the wine isn't as good. So, you know, a lot of people have kind of gone that route, but you went kind of the other route of making something that's really exceptional. And, you know, Mike Smith, one of the, the top winemakers in California, and you're working with some of the top vineyards for Pinot Noir, which we're, which we're going to get into. What was that experience like of deciding which path you wanted to go down of cre- like creating this type of wine? I, I think a trip to Burgundy kind of just hit it off for me. And first of all, the grapes varietal, the grape varietal I wanted to to use. Uh, and of course, that was, you know, for the reds was Pinot Noir. I, for whatever reason, I had in the back of my mind that I just didn't feel that in California we could. And again, I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not trying to copy Burgundy, but, you know, just trying to find, I, I just felt Pinot was the way to go in California uh, as opposed to Chardonnay. But the single vineyard designate issue caught me with how, you know, Burgundy just parcels up everything. A single vineyard is then broken up and bottled separately into multiple uh, different labels. So that caught my attention of, I really felt let's capture the terroir of, 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 of you know, a certain place. Let's get that as much as we can. And uh, we started with Gap's Crown Vineyard only in 2011, which is now in the Petaluma Gap, you know, Sonoma Coast. Uh, Petaluma Gap is the new AVA. It was created about three or four years ago. Um, and then we, the next year in 2012, we added Sun Chase, which is only about two miles away as the crow flies from, from Gap's Crown. But it's higher on Sonoma Mountain. It's about 800 foot elevation. So... It gives you some of the same, but then it gives you something new and different. And then the next year, 2013, was our first vintage of Sobranus, which is in the Santa Lucia Highlands ABA, which is about 45 minutes south of Monterey. And it's owned by the Pizzoni family, who are you know, renowned for their Pinot Noir. And um, that it just I think the Burgundy experience caught my attention of how to separate and get into and differentiate, even though it's the same varietal. Uh, you have different locations, different vineyards, and uh, different clones, and, and then you go from there and put it all together. And, uh, you know, that's that's how the selection process, we, we then jumped, Ryan, you know, 
decided what we wanted, then what style? Where? So we started drinking wines from uh, the Sonoma Coast, first of mm -hmm. all, and we kind of narrowed into a few of the labels that we wanted. My partner, Dean Nusich, co-founder of Patinay, we were friends in Los Angeles, sitting on the beach in Manhattan Beach, kind of chatting back and forth, really didn't know each other. He found that I liked wine. I found that he liked wine. We started now, you know, bringing bottles to the beach and blind tasting and trying to catch each other. And then finally I said to Dean, Dean, you know, I want to have a wine label. He said, oh, really? He said, I know a winemaker. I said, really, who is it? He said, Mike Smith. I didn't know a lot about Mike at the time, uh, but Dean had uh, interned for Mike for three summers or three crushes in a row. Uh, he took time off from his work, went down, and he really got to know Mike very well. Dean brought us to Mike's house one time for a tasting. Mike was not aware that we were looking for a winemaker. We tasted about 11 different of his wines he was making, mostly Cabs and Syrahs. And the one thing that caught our attention, Ryan, was this. None of the 11 wines were over-oaked. The perception of oak was incredibly well-balanced. And I looked at my wife, Susie, and we just said, this, this is the style. Now, it wasn't the grape yet, but it was the style. A little bit bigger, a little bit bolder, but not over-oaked. And then we moved into the, to the Pinot Noir, and uh, we talked to Mike about it. Dean brought that together, and there's Patinay in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, that... that... You know, that really speaks to his type of winemaking style, as you mentioned, of being able to add oak to the fruit without making it so overpowering where you're only tasting the oak. Because, you know, there's a lot of vineyards. I talk to a lot of winemakers how, you know, oak is used. Some winemakers describe it as kind of an additive, but it can be you know, used in a, in a proper way and something that actually complements the wine. And there's a lot of fruit that can actually take a pretty good amount of oak. So um, that's an interesting kind of thing that you got from tasting through some of his wines. So a lot of people kind of know his history, but he worked with Thomas Rivers Brown, kind of studied under him, um, you know, really popular winemaker in Napa, a lot of great Napa cabs. And um, since then, you know, Mike is has working with so many different labels now he has his own label of course myriad becklin um there's there's so many great cabs and syrahs now was he working with pino already at the time when you um you know you know approached him to to work on this project i know he he was originally from oregon and had kind of a background in pino but was he actually consulting with any labels at the time no he was not patine was his first uh, as far as pino and um, again, like you said, with his background in Oregon, he certainly was well versed in it. Uh, again, to when he moved to Napa, of course, that kind of changed a little bit. Um, but when Mike and Dean and I got together and, and Susie, my wife, that was just, uh, you know, we, we brought it up to him and he had no problem whatsoever going into it. Um, I think if I can say it's it's back to the oak issue. Uh, I think Mike puts a high, high premium and priority on matching up uh, various cooperages with the actual style of wine that we make. And uh, we're about 50% new French oak, basically, in all three of our single vineyard designate. Uh, that varies from year to year, but I would say, you know, 50% French new. And uh, But where they come from in France, who makes them, uh, how the juice is able to extract a little bit of that oak without overwhelming the wine. Uh, I think Mike puts a lot of thought into that. And maybe I think that's one of the things that separates him from some other guys out there, other people, I should say. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you already touched on this a little bit, but let's dive a little bit deeper into each vineyard and we can go through some of the wines here. Um, so, of course, you, you're offering three right now and we can talk about the release and how people can sign up. Um, but first, let's let's go to Gaps Crown. You already touched on it a little bit, the new AVA. But what, you know, how were you able to get access to that fruit, and what was that process like? I heard uh, you talking about some interesting kind of anecdotes uh, with that in the past, and then we can get into this wine and the tasting notes and the profile here. Well, it started out again by we were we were tasting other labels uh, that brought a bigger Pinot Noir style. Let's just call it California style Pinot. And um, when we narrowed it down, we got into that area. We, we did get into the Sonoma Coast area. 
Um, and then Mike Smith did the footwork on it. And he tasted a few more. And he narrowed it into to Gap's Crown. Um, I think there was a little bit of a King's connection there. Also, one of the higher ups in the ownership of uh, Gap's Crown uh, kind of had a, he knew who I was a little bit. And we, we, we made 100 cases our first year in 11. That was it, very small. We're still very small overall, basically between three. We only make 500 cases, so we're very, very small, but we like to keep it that way. But after our first year, the 2011 vintage, Gap's Crown was sold. And of course, we received a letter in the mail <laughs> saying, okay, just want you to know we've sold the vineyard. And uh, the new owners you know, contacted us and said, well, we will no longer be selling you any uh, grapes. Well, there I go. At one year in and we're done. <laughs> because uh, we had not yet entered into any agreement with Sunchase yet. So uh, so Mike had an idea and he was, you know, he knew the, the people that were maintaining and farming Gap's Crown. And they, uh, Mike arranged for a meeting with the, uh, the ownership and um, brought along a bottle of our 2011. Opened it up, drank it with him, and they said, we will sell you our fruit. Uh, so Mike took that step, proved to them the quality that he was making. They reversed their decision and decided to keep selling us uh, fruit. And that was, again, early, early on. And, uh, you know, again, then we went uh, on from there. But um, if there is any vineyard of our three that does define big, bold California Pinot Noir, it would be Gap's Crown. It's a vineyard that's known to provide a little bit more tannic structure than most Pinot Noir. But again, because of the climate, it still has the crispness, the acidity, and the fruit and the ripeness is certainly something we don't really have to worry that much here in California about, but how to get that balance. And we feel with Gap, we're not afraid to call Gap's Crown our steak lovers or cab lovers Pinot because we think it provides a little bit of that flavor profile, but at the same time, it has the subtleness and the vibrancy of a Pinot. Yeah, I love those terms. I, I've seen reference to that where you, you guys referenced that in the past, kind of like a steak lover's Pinot or a cab lover's Pinot. I think that's that's right on with this one. Um, there's some great tasting notes on the website, which, of course, we'll link in the show notes, patinacellars.com. Um, and so you got the notes there, which which I think nails it. The red fruit, um, you know, really intense fruit, notes of baking spice, dark cherry. Um, and uh, this wine, you know, you have some more uh, details on the on this on the vineyard site, which is interesting if people want to read through that, just under 200 cases. And as you mentioned, the 50% um, new French oak. And um, now, how involved are you or have you been in the, in the, in the past years on um, actually helping out with uh, doing the harvest? And um, I mean, obviously, you're, you're working with a custom crush uh, facility, right? And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying you're going to take, <laughs> take time out of you know, your, uh, your day job there, but I've seen some photos of you working with the grapes and things like that. So like, have you been able to kind of get involved in, in some of these things through the years? Yeah, it varies from uh, crush to crush. Yeah. Uh, the startup of the NHL season, which is my main job, you know, again, as TV analyst, is kind of coincides with with late fall, uh, a late summer, early fall. So that kind of runs into that area where we're picking. Um, in 17, though, my wife and I, we rented a house up there in, in Napa. We make our wines. Now we make it at Tambor Bay, which is on Tubbs Lane in Calistoga, so northern Napa Valley. Um, We've just recently moved from, from across the street. Mike has moved all of his winemaking over there. So even though we are custom crushed, because Mike makes so many different labels and so many different wines, he basically has the entire run of the, you know, he he's taking over the facility with all of his wines and he's there every single day or, you know what I'm saying? He's there day after day after day. It's not like he just pops in every once in a while. So so that that gives us, I think, a little bit of a hybrid between what you'd be, you know, 100% custom crush and then estate where you own everything. I think we're right in between there because of Mike's relationship 
uh, and that, that, that goes a long way, I think, into being able to, you know, craft the wine that you want to craft and, and make sure you have all of the uh, things available. But in 2017, Susie and I went up for a full month. And for 30 straight days, I was e either in the vineyard or in the winery or both with Mike. And I can tell you that no matter what school you go to, that is the best schooling. Hands on, you watch Mike walk through a vineyard, you watch him and the detail he puts into it and how many little things he notices and then he points out to me and I had no, not even a clue of, you know, just the soil content and where, where that soil came uh, 200,000 years ago and what's, but then how it's important to this and then where it changes in a vineyard and where the high spots are, where the low spots are, where the drainage is, all of those areas, the, the leaves on the vine, okay, it's getting ripe, okay, let's take a look at the berries, let's open it, let's crush it, let's see the color of the seeds. Let's take a look that way. Let's taste it. All of those. Let's test it. Uh, all of those things for 30 straight days. Uh, that was the biggest experience I've ever had in 17. Uh, but yearly we're there. We talk. Uh, we're involved all the time. So, uh, But that, that, that to me was just a great experience to be able to spend that much time and put that much just thought and process into what was going on. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, antidote and a great way to describe the kind of hybrid approach you have. Timber Bay is a great facility. It's where Thomas Rivers Brown made uh, and still makes a lot of his wines that he consults Correct. for. And as you mentioned, um, Mike Smith moving over operations from just across the street. So um, there's so many high-end wines that are that are made there. And uh, like you said, being there every day and working with, uh, you know, the crew and the, the whole facility has, you know, very strict protocols and um, how things are kept clean and how everything is made. So it's it's unlike kind of the more traditional, I'd say, custom crush where it's people are maybe you come and go and you're not there kind of every day so yeah. um it's it's a it's a it's a really uh it's a really great model there um and right. so i think people would be surprised how much time and effort is spent into just keeping things sanitized i mean that's where 75 percent of the effort goes into making sure everything you are touching everything that's coming into the contact with the grapes everything that's even alive on the floors and how everything has to be, you know, it's usually the crust pad is cement. And, but all of that has to be made sure that there are none of the bacteria that you don't want around. And, you know, that you just, you have to watch every, every place you place a tool, every, any place, you've got to make sure you know where it is, what's touching. And then of course, when it goes into it, you, you sanitize it before you even come close to the fruit. So uh, it's an experience that, uh, and you know what, that's not only, unique to Mike. That's that's all wineries I've been involved in around. Uh, that's exactly what they do. In, the intensity and priority they put on sanitation is just phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. I think a lot of people uh, who are new to wine and learning about it or working on their first uh, harvest or doing crush, it's, you know, like you said, 70, 80 percent of it is just cleaning things, which comes as a surprise to many people. Let's get into the Sobranus Vineyard um, and, and get your thoughts on this one. Again, great notes here. On the website, uh, Santa Lucia Highlands, um, this is a family vineyard you already touched on a little bit, but let's get into this one. Yeah, you know, the, the best thing to do is, you know, if any, just Google you know, Gary Pizzoni. Mm -hmm. uh, his sons now run most of the operation for him. The, the Francioni family, who, you know, Gary, both Garys, uh, were working together forever. The one thing about th their vineyards is because they've been involved in the agricultural business for years. I mean, on the floor in Santa Lucia Highland area, on the floor where they just grow vegetables. But what that does is allows them to have full-time staff all year round. So it's not just temporary workers coming in at certain times. So their ability to control what's happening there is, is you know, second to none. Again, it's, you know, we can't call it a state fruit because we don't control it from start to finish. But we certainly, uh, we certainly respect uh, what's go going on with the Pizzoni family in, in the Sobranos Vineyard. Um, I think that AVA, Central Lucia Highlands, gives you a little bit more. It's, 
it's probably the coolest region in California where Pinot is being grown. Uh, you know, the fog that I think a lot of people know is so important when you're talking about wine growing, especially with Pinot Noir. But the fog and how it rolls in there. And then usually the late afternoon winds in Santa Lucia Highlands. Uh, you're talking 20, 25 mile an hour winds basically every afternoon. It just comes in. So it cools everything down. So you get enough sun to get the ripeness, but then you get the cool, which again brings the acidity, which Pinot Noir kind of separates itself from most other varietals. And um, that's so important. But uh, the care they take uh, is phenomenal. And we're, we're very, very happy to, to be there. Uh, you know, you're talking about an area that, and with the Pizzoni family, you're talking iconic in, in California. And uh, with Gaps, with Sunchase, and with Sobranus, I think that uh, we've been fortunate to not only select, but also be able to, I'm going to say, get in line to just be considered to get that fruit. And now that we have it, we're, we Mike is doing a phenomenal job with it. Yeah, and so this one, full spectrum of bright and dark fruits, uh, characterized by subtle spiciness, um, lavender, tangy orange peel. Those are some of the notes here on the website. You know, rich and full, which which I definitely get as well. Um, but as you mentioned, still having that acidity and really the balance there and the, the juicy kind of mid-palate um, characterized by plenty of weight, like it says here on the website, is you get the those really round and broadly textured flavors, but balance with the with the acidity, which is great for food and pairing with uh, different types of recipes and things. Um, how do you describe this wine compared to Gaps yep. when you're talking about it uh, with people? I can I can go through the three if I, if if you don't mind. Just, yeah, again, yeah, please do. As as everyone I think understands who deals with wine, uh, even though I'm going to speak in generalities here, it does change from vin vintage to vintage. But there are some characteristics that are fundamental and consistent with each vineyard. Uh, I'll start with gaps again: bigger, bolder, more tannic. So you're going to get, you know, you're going to get a little bit of a punch there. There's a little bit of a power that you're going to feel with gaps. And again, so if you know, if you're pairing, if you're thinking of, of a food, you're, you're definitely thinking red meat and it's going to be right there. I think Sunchase, again, it's up on the mountain. It's above the fog line, basically. So originally when we start to source fruit from Sunchase, uh, you know, the ripening was supposed to happen quicker. Well, because of the drainage and the soils, it really doesn't. So the fruit hangs long and as long as possible on the vines, which again, as you would know, is uh, most people know that's so important. The longer it can hang without disturbing the balance is, is phenomenal. I think there's an intensity to Sunchase. There's a brightness to Sunchase. And I think when I think of pairing with Sunchase, I think of the, the classic pairings, which to me are mushroom. Uh, you know, so anything mushroom related, uh, I think pairs well with the Sunchase. Sobranus, you brought up the word that I think Sobranus from year to year, it's the spice. There's a spice in that area that is just, it catches your attention. It can go some years to even a, a very, a, a peppery. And for that reason, I think there's also a concentrated. So gaps bold, sunchase intense, Sobranus concentration. All those three probably can almost mean the same thing, but hopefully if you get a chance to, to try some patinae, I think you'll maybe get a, an understanding of where I'm going, the difference between the power of gaps and, and the intensity of Sunchase and the concentration of Sobranus. Uh, but with Sobranus, I, I tend to think it goes with more of the ethnic spice dishes, so Asian food, uh, things of that sort, uh, I think that's the best pairing there. So three Pinots, three different, and that's what we're shooting for in variety uh, to make sure that when you get a chance to try all three, you can experience three different uh, flavor characteristics. 
Yeah, no, that, that's a great rundown. And just wrapping it up on the notes on the Sunchase Vineyard here from the website, robust flavors, um, you know, exceptional texture, really characterized by strawberry rhubarb flavors, followed by herbaceous notes of thyme. Um, and that, that's one thing that I do get from certain pinots is I'll, I'll get like thyme and oregano, those type of uh, flavors blended with, as it says here, strawberry rhubarb or sometimes raspberry or cherry. Is that something that you um, pick up on, on pinot as well, depending on, on the vineyard here? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, Ryan, the one thing I get, um, which I think is more predominant in the gaps in the Sobranus, is black tea. Mm-hmm. And it's that soothing, and I think if you had tea before, I think that's that dryness you feel with tea is tannins mm-hmm. or are tannins. So it's the similar characteristic, but the flavor I do get a flavor issue with with um, flavor component I get with gaps and sobranus, which to me is black tea, and to me that is the most soothing. I, I just love it. A lot of times I get it on the nose, but mostly I think I get it more on the palate, and it to me just. It just completes the entire wine. It it brings it through so many different levels, but then it brings me back to that. And and I think overall, I think that characteristic to me brings you to what classic Pinot Noir should be, which is not something that's going to slap you in the face, even though I did use that with gaps. It's something to me that is more of an elegant issue. And I think that's what we're striving for. To, you know, we all are striving for balance. Uh, but I think because of the the fruit that we have available to us and the winemaker and Mike Smith that we have available at Patine, I think that brings the opportunity to make sure the balance comes through. And uh, But that component of black tea to me is something, what, if I get it, I usually notice it right away when we're tasting out of the barrels. And if I get it, I just it just brings a huge smile to my face. Yeah, that's that's great. That's something can people can keep in mind while they're tasting through these wines and see if they can taste some of the flavor profiles that you talked about there, and then definitely the black tea. Talk about the meaning behind patiné or what the word means, and then uh, as well as the the bottle here there, that you really went to so much detail, um, the hockey puck, and I'll I'll let you I'll let you describe it. Well, first of all, patiné. Uh, is French, and the meaning it's the past participle of skate. So it basically means to have skated. Uh, so when we were choosing a name, uh, Ryan, we were really careful. We we thought long and hard about, you know, do we do we make it a hockey name? Do we make it a sports name? Because we didn't want it to be. We felt that with Mike and with the fruit, we were going to have a higher quality, the single vineyard des- designate nature, you know, something that's a little bit more. Uh, you know, you consider a little bit more, again, it's, it's tough. I, I don't mean to demean any classification, but it's just the quality would be up there. So we didn't want to, we didn't want to confuse people and say, this is some ex hockey player's wine. It's uh, it's a quality wine that has an ex hockey player involved. So we were really concerned about using a hockey name, but then we, we just went back to the bottom line and we said, you know what, we, we are going to be making a bigger, bolder style of, of Pinot Noir. So skating, hockey skating more so, not figures, like just the power, that type of stuff. And then when we thought, okay, what do you strive for? I just went over it. What are you all striving for? What are we striving for in the wine business? And that is balance. And what is the number one component you need in skating? It's balance. So it just kind of hit us in the face that, you know what, we have a little bit of a, a name here that defines what we're trying to do. And it also captures a little bit of uh, our history and our foundation, which is my experience playing hockey in the National Hockey League. So uh, that's how it came together. Uh, the packaging, uh, we have skate lines through most of our packaging. It's in our foil uh, on the capsule uh, that covers the cork. Uh, it's on our boxes that we ship our wine in. Uh, but the label that catches a lot of people's attention, it's a horizontal, it goes around the bottle. It's not necessarily the normal paper, paper flat label that you'd see front and back. It wraps around the bottle and it mimics the texture of a hockey puck. It has a texture, uh, 
you know, hockey puck is rubber. We didn't want to use rubber because rubber has an odor and you don't want an odor around a bottle of wine. Uh, so it's silicon, but it does mimic the texture of a hockey puck. And I, we think with all of that coming together, uh, it, it gives us, a, a, it helps us define the wines that we're making. And it's very consistent when you define what you're trying to do and then you can capture that in your packaging and your labeling. Uh, I think we have a, a, a well-rounded, uh, high-quality product to offer people. Yeah, the, the packaging and the labeling and everything is so cool. So when people finally get their hands on this wine, they'll be able to see everything that you talked about there. Um, I wanted to ask you about just wine culture in, in the NHL. There's been several stories from ESPN and others written on wine culture in the NBA, and there's been a few outspoken players about it. Um, I remember reading a story about the NBA bubble when they were uh, playing their games during COVID. There were certain wines that were brought in uh, to the bubble, and someone wrote an article about that. But maybe you could just talk on any stories that you have on uh, kind of wine culture or you sharing your wines. You already mentioned drinking out of the Stanley Cup, so um, that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's funny. People ask me because I'm an analyst of the games. They ask me all the time, you know, what's the, when I played, what's the difference between then and now? And I always say, well, back then we used to drink beer. Now they drink wine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's the biggest difference. You know, it, it is an economic issue. I mean, uh, you know, professional athletes are at a level where they can probably start to afford the higher quality world class wines at a younger age and get a chance to experience, which is, you know, it's a <laughs> it's a tough way when you enter at the top. It's tough to beat after that. Um, but again, like I said, way back, you're always striving and looking for that next glass of wine that just, man, where, how the heck did they make it so good? Um, but yeah, in hockey, like Wayne Gretzky has a label up in Canada that, you know, so there's no bigger name in hockey than Wayne Gretzky. Um, I think originally he just lent his name to it now. And I think lately he's become more involved in it. Um, there's a few, there, there's more than a few players around. I know Val Bure used to play for the Kings. Um, he has a uh, Bure family wines up in Napa Valley, uh, mostly Cab and uh, you know uh, Bordeaux blends. Uh, but it is a bigger, you know, these kids are they're young, right? They're you know the average age is probably 24, 25. Uh, I think our our numbers and demographics tell us that younger people are starting to drink wine at a younger age than way, you know earlier, and maybe that's just a natural prog uh, progression into the National Hockey League because. I find that a lot of players uh, do have that opportunity to do so. And, uh, and it is, it is, it's a very, you'd be surprised how many players now, you know, a 22 year old kid can start a pretty good conversation about wine. Yeah, no, it's, that, those are uh, some great anecdotes. Talk about how you think about food pairings, decanting and temperature. You're, you already mentioned some great food pairings there. So if you had any other ones, but um, yeah, you know, temperature and decanting are always things that people ask about. I'll start with the food pairing because it's very, I'm very interested in that, but I have to admit in let's say 25 years of what I consider serious wine education and I think I probably had 10 food and wine pairings in my entire life which I think hit the home run that were just through the roof phenomenal and it's very hard it's I think it's very hard to get that perfect pairing I will say this there are standards out there there are you know you know white with fish and red I do follow those. I do follow those. And I think, generally speaking, that's the way it is. I, I think when I found the opportunity to get the perfect pairing, the 10 times, it's been when you've matched up similar characteristics. So a cab and a New York strip. It's difficult, though. It's difficult to hit the home run. I think there are many times if you don't go power against power, you do have a better chance of getting a pleasant experience as opposed to that home run hitting experience. Uh, so again, if, you're, if your wine is on the lighter version, you might pair it with a heavier uh, sauce, vice versa, lighter sauce, heavier wine, you can, you can go that way too. But to me, it's just a lifelong education and uh, continuing to try. But 
I do, I do think a lot about it when I'm going out to dinner. I do think about the pairing, and I think it's very intimidating to a lot of people, and it really doesn't have to be and shouldn't be. It really is. It's your palate. You like what you like. You want what you want. Some people are hypersensitive to a certain flavor. Some people are, are, are less sensitive. So everyone's feel and experience is going to be different. But, uh, you know, when you do hit the home run, man, is it phenomenal. Uh, temperature is the most underrated, the single most underrated element component when you're serving a wine. No question in my mind. Generally speaking, those who've taken the, even the Wine 101, we serve our white wines too cold and we serve our red wines too warm. Too cold mutes the flavors. You don't get the, the fruit. You don't get some of the components that are involved in there. Uh, too warm in the reds probably just accentuates the alcohol and doesn't allow you to get through different layers of the flavors. Uh, I chill my reds now every opportunity I can. So, you know, 55 degrees, you know, which is basic cellar temperature. Uh, I think when they made the rule, the general rule, room temperature with reds, that's before insulation was around and room temperature was probably closer to 60 degrees than you consider 68 or 70 now. Do those eight degrees make a difference? I think they do. I think if you have a perfectly uh, served red wine that has a little crispness on it with, with temperature, I think it just it bright, it brings out the bright characteristics of the red. Uh, I think there are some white wines that you need to serve cold and it goes against a lot, you know, but if I'm going to have a crisp Sauvignon Blanc or a crisp Pinot Grigio, I want the crispness, I want the cool, I want the cold, I want it quenching. So that's the reason I would have that. But if you want to get into some pairings, you probably have to bring it, the temperature uh, down a little bit, uh, warm it up a little bit before you get all the flavors. Uh, but again, single most undervalued element is the temperature of the wine. Uh, decanting. I've read, I've experienced, I've done different, everything in the book. And I think the more research you do, you find out the more differing opinions of what to do. Generally speaking, young wine, yes, decant. Old wine, decant, but mostly to remove the sediment that's involved. A delicate older wine, a 40-year-old Bordeaux, yeah, it might be able to hang up to a two or three hour decant. But I've found in my experience that anything over a half an hour of decanting an older wine, a more mature wine, I think you lose something after the first half hour and it ends up in disappointment many times. All of these are personal experiences. Again, I can go to any website and find a different opinion than mine. And people who certainly have more experience, and then maybe you can go into the chemistry who has more experience there on how it breaks down uh, after being opened. The best way to decant wine is to pour it in a glass and let it sit there. So for those, and it's it's fine, but I'm if you want to get the optimal out of a wine, when you go to a restaurant and the server says, I'm going to pull the cork to let it breathe, well, pour it into a glass because pulling the cork doesn't let it breathe. It, it, it starts it, but... Letting it breathe is the ratio between liquid and air. So pour a quarter of a glass, let it sit there for 10 minutes, swirl it a few times, let the air interact with the wine. Do that. If you have the opportunity to use a decanter, go ahead and do it. I do it as much as possible. But again, for our younger wines, I'm looking at a two hour or three hour decant of a patinet. Uh, but if it's an older one, and I'm drinking some of our older vintages now, I, they would consider more mature vintages, the 11, 12s, and 13s. Uh, I think with a, uh, you know, just almost put it in the glass and swirl, 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 uh, I think that does the job there. So I don't know if I've helped, but I know that there's a lot of research that is done and a lot of things you can read about. Uh, but all uh, three of the things we just talked about are very important on how to appreciate and get the most out of a wine. Yeah, that's great. Those are some great tips for people. Um, tell people how they can buy Patin A, how they can get on the mailing list and get involved. And then additionally, kind of follow you and what you're doing. I know you're going to be working with NHL radio uh, for the playoffs and those type of things. 
Yeah, uh, hockey-wise, yeah, I'll be starting next week, um, doing a few games a week. Um, just trying to, uh, for NHL radio, have been covering, oh, geez. <laughs> I don't know how many years now I've been doing that. Ryan, you're making me feel old. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's it's a great experience, you know, to go around. And, you know, of course, we had that experience with the Kings and winning their own. But um, I'd say for the past, too, 04. So almost 20 years now I've done NHL radio through the playoffs and, you know, get a chance to see or watch or, you know, when the cup is handed out and I do, uh, I do um, analysis for that. So that, that keeps you involved, right, at the best time of year, when, even if, you know, the Kings didn't make the playoffs this year. So, you know, they're not going to be involved. But it just it keeps you around it and keeps you involved. And uh, Sports USA Media has the, the rights this year. It changed from previous years, but I was fortunate enough to, to be involved this year. Um, we'll do uh, second round games here and there, and then I'll do one of the semifinals completely, all, all, all games in the semifinal. So that'll keep me busy. Uh, it's a little bit different this year because of COVID and how it's structured and the divisional things. But, uh, uh, you know, as far as Patinay, we are basically a mailing list only. We're, we're very small. We're allocation based also because we don't have a lot to go around. But patinaysellers.com, um, that's, that's, you sign up on our mailing list and then you get a chance to get your allocations. Of course, if you do that, then when the next vintage comes out or future vintages come out, you receive uh, the opportunity to get in line earlier. You're prioritized and you're able to uh, acquire Patinay before it goes to the general general mailing list. And we will continue that. I will say uh, for the 2019 vintage, which will be coming out this fall, we will also will have a blend, which is something we're going to do. We're going to blend the Gaps and Sunchase. So we'll have a Sonoma Close blend. Um, hopefully allowing us to capture some of the things that each vineyard, you know, can't bring because they're separate and bring them together. So that's something new for us. It'll be our first year this year that we would have that available. Again, it's the 19. Basically with Patinay, uh, we crush, we go about 10 months on oak, but then we, we go a full year plus in bottle before we release. Uh, just to allow it to settle down a little bit, just to allow it to get closer to uh, uh, you know, when you would consider the the optimal time to open a bottle of wine. Uh, so that's why we're always two years behind. So again, this year to 22, 19, excuse me, 21, this fall will be the release of our 2019 vintage. So patinaysellers.com, uh, go there. If anyone has questions, they can always email me at jim at patinaysellers.com and uh, get back to you as soon as possible. And uh, we love it. We love to get the feedback from our, our, our friends and and our customers um, because of COVID we, you know, we haven't been doing any tastings, but we do that too. So if you need to get in touch with me again, Jim at patinaysellers.com, uh, any type of an event you want, we can, we can customize it for you. We can come to you uh, and uh, help you experience Patinay. Uh Appointment only it's available now uh, coming up. We'll be finalizing the details, but at Tambor Bay in Calistoga, you will be able to taste all of Mike Smith's wines, including Patinay, which is new for us. We've never had that before. We think it's going to be a huge, uh, just a huge positive for us to be able to offer our wines in a tasting room environment, which we've never done before. So that'll be coming up. So all of that, a lot of big news coming up. But uh, PatinaySellers.com, that's where you do it. We'll ship it to you. We'll get it to you. And we want to get your feedback on how you're enjoying it. That's great. And um, yeah, I was going to ask maybe some winemakers dinners eventually after COVID kind of subsides. I know you've done those in the past. Um, yeah, very, selling... very enjoyable. Very, you know, mm -hmm. it's a great opportunity to, again, pair some, you know, you go to a, you go to a, a venue, a restaurant, a golf course, whatever. You, you meet with their chef, taste the wines. He comes back with the menu. Their membership gets a chance to taste it. A restaurant, with, like you're saying, all of those types of things. Uh, Patinay is available in a few restaurants, mostly here in um, in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, Mike Smith has his reputation. So the French Laundry also pours Patinay sellers. So uh, we have a pretty exclusive list of restaurants uh, that carry our wine. So uh, we, we I, I can't wait 
And we're getting close, right, Ryan? We're getting close. Uh, the COVID restrictions are, seem to be, you know, loosening to the point where I think probably here in, in late summer, early fall, we'll be back to uh, getting some face-to-face contact with people with some, and, you know, I'm talking restaurants and, you know, I guess a golf course, but if anyone out there is interested, they have a group of people, you know, 20, 25, something like that, want to get together, uh, we can customize an event for you. Yeah, that's great. And people should definitely take advantage of being able to taste through all of Mike Smith's wines, as well as Patinets, you said, at Tambor Bay. They, it's a beautiful facility. They've got, I think, about a dozen hor- horses on the property, which is just uh, really unique. Um, and, it, and it's situated in, in kind of a really beautiful area in Calistoga there, right, just down the street from yeah. uh, Chateau Montalena as well. So I don't know how many of your uh, listeners have been to Calistoga, but um, it's the most unique city in Napa Valley, and it has some great history with the uh, Aboriginal and Native people that grew up, you know, way, way, way hundreds of years ago. But back through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, were perhaps more of a hippie, hippie type of uh, culture was involved. Uh, you know, I just love, you know. Any place in Napa is phenomenal, but to me, Calistoga gives you something a little bit different, and it's 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 a lot of fun, I'll tell you that. Yeah, Jim, and lastly, we wrap up with just a kind of a fun question. Um, we ask all of our guests who come on at the very end, what do you what are you drinking when you're not drinking wine? And it could be something alcoholic, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> well, last summer, uh, actually, I mean, it's not last summer now, it's last fall due to COVID. Uh, we have a friend, my wife and I, that uh, has some health issues, and we went to La Quinta, which we go to quite a bit. So it's the desert here in California, for those not familiar. And we rented a house for about a month. And for those who know La Quinta, it's probably 110, 112, 115 every single day. Hot, dry, but hot, desert, desert. So we, because of the COVID restrictions, we were basically in our home for a full 30 days and really couldn't go out to dinner. Not many places were open, but a few were here and there, and we went to the clubhouse, uh, the the, uh, the uh, resort clubhouse at PJ West in La Quinta, and I know a lot of people there. And our friendly bartender poured me a margarita, just a straight up margarita. I'm kind of ta- I'm going into the Cadillac margaritas now with a little Grand Marnier on the top, but uh, I'll tell you what, that is my drink of choice now, crisp cold icy margarita and uh that trip to la quinta did it for me but i I have to admit (laughs) i'm still carrying on a few of that it's still lingering on my palate right now so when i'm not drinking wine it's usually a margarita perfect well that gives uh people out there a little insight and maybe an idea for the weekend jim uh thank you so much for coming on and doing this i really appreciate it ryan my pleasure it's great to, to speak with you i i I love what you do. Uh, Again, our job now is to make sure more people get involved with wine. Our job is to make sure that we're not intimidating a lot of people. I'm a hockey player. I grew up in 2,500 people in Northern Ontario, Canada. Uh, My friends, a lot of Italian immigrants, their their parents used to make wine down in the cellars in their homes, never really tasted it, didn't know anything about it. Uh, But it's something I think once you get involved in it, you don't have to get serious. You just have to enjoy it. And I think what you do is great to to bring wine to as many people as possible and hopefully they get a chance to experience it for themselves. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.